Welcome to another episode of the Critical Talks podcast, anything and everything on the future of manufacturing with special emphasis in quality. Uh, today's episode is on the power of small multiples and a progressive search in diagnosing and solving tough problems. And I'm joined by the incredible John Allen here of the New Science of Fixing Things. And John is also the, one of the original founders of Shannon LLC. Hi, John. How are you? Good afternoon. Thank you very much. I'm, uh, I'm doing quite well. Appreciate great. You look great. Oh, yeah. Right. Thank you very much. <laughs> so just to um, introduce you to the listeners and viewers, John has an incredible background and career. Um, like, I, like I mentioned before, he is one of the original founders of Shannon LLC, and he has decades of experience training, coaching, people on how to solve tough problems. And he's, he's actually solved very tough problems himself. After, you know, being a part of Shannon NLC, he eventually left Shannon um, to start his own company along with a few of his partners. And that company, that group is called the New Science of Fixing Things. And ever since then, they have uh, essentially developed uh, what I would say is an incredible, incredibly powerful strategy for diagnosing um, performance and reliability issues and improving you know, quality and product performance. John has a reputation. His reputation precedes him in that whenever there's a tough problem, um, reliability or product performance problem, he and his group are called to solve the problem. And they, they actually do solve the problem, and it takes a lot less time than with other traditional methods or approaches. So, um, so with that said, John, would you mind sharing with the audience, in your own words, what your group is about? I'd be happy to, and thanks again for inviting me. Um, there were a couple of things that you said that I'd like, I would have said just a little bit different. One of them is that we go in and solve tough problems. We go in and in conjunction with a team we, of the, the, of, at the client, we solve tough problems because without them, we couldn't do it. Um, David and I formed the new science of fixing things about 15 years ago. And the idea was to change the direction of professional problem solving. And we've done it. The emphasis is on how we go about doing it on a causal explanation and not a root cause because there's a big difference. Mm -hmm. uh, emphasis is not on probabilistic decomposition of machine behavior for the purposes of improving quality, reliability, and, uh, and performance, but rather um, on first principles of how stuff really works in order to be able to decompose behavior. And uh, we're, we're proud of what we've done. We're pleased with what we've done. And we can continuously do things like, for example, last week I was in a company. Um, they asked me to come out and do a workshop. We picked a few projects. And um, one of the projects had been around for nine years and we figured it out in just a few days. And that's not uncommon. That's incredible, actually. Well, actually it is. And there are some things that we do and things that we say when we get there uh, and we start working and, and, um, and constraints that we have on ourselves. And, and we, I'll, I'm 
candid and frank about saying there's nobody in the world that's better at doing what we do than we are. It's me, David Hartshorn, and Tobias Mack. Um, David is in the, in the United Kingdom and Tobias is in Germany. And all three of us were founding members of Shane and LLC. And we left at different times. Um, and David and I got together within a, within a year after each of us left to start the new science of fixing things. But there are a couple of constraints that we put on ourselves for a good reason. Um, when I work with a client, I say, your job is not to solve the problem. That's interesting because that's the way people start. And when they start that way, it's all based on symptomatic or experienced-based problem solving. And if it were purely based on experience, we would be the least qualified in the room to solve that problem. So we shift away from symptomatic into topographic model-based problem solving. There are four fundamental ways that, that uh, machines reveal their physical nature or how products are manufactured will reveal the physical nature. And there are only four. Okay, what, what are those four? The four are called isolation, which is separating an input from a function. I can give you an example of that. There was a company that was making lithium batteries in China and they asked me to come over I don't know, a couple of years ago. And um, the coating was coming off. And um, uh, they assumed that the coating was not properly applied. And they, were, and they had worked for quite some time, try to find ways to improve the coating process. So I asked, I started with one question and I cannot overemphasize the importance of asking the first question properly and effectively. And a first question is critical to the whether or not you're going to be able to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. now, let me just back up for a second. All science is done by asking the question, all of it. And it always has been. So you have to be careful about the way that you phrase a question. When people are doing symptomatic case-based problem solving, they're asking a question. The question is what's wrong with this thing? And they're mm -hmm. looking for a root cause. We don't start with that question. The question is, what's happening? And the, and, the, and the answer is a causal explanation, which is a rich functional understanding of how something is behaving and how it's supposed to behave. And we don't need big sample sizes. Most for certain kinds of projects, we can just use one. We never use big sample sizes because we don't need them because we have a, deter a functional deterministic approach which is key to what we do, not probabilistic. Now, the back to the constraints, the constraints of what we do. When I start working on a problem, I tell people your job is not to solve the problem. Your job is to learn one thing every day about the physics of function and failed function in a search for a causal explanation, which is an answer, fundamental answer to the question what's happening. Now, on the, on the project that I did in the battery company where the coating was coming off, first thing I wanted to know is at what point could I find the coating where it was coming off? And we had to do a few things to, to expedite that and be able to see it. But the first question that I asked was either the coating was on and got knocked off or never was on correctly. That's a fundamental, and, and that there can be nothing else except for one of those two things. If one statement is true, the other one is false. 
And that can begin to eliminate what the problem is not. Mm -hmm. So it's a, 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 a convergent search through a process of elimination. And it starts with the entire world of what's possible, poses a good question, eliminate what the problem is not, and then based on what you've got, you ask, ask another question that will take advantage of the physical world because of the way machines, products, and processes will reveal their physical nature. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it turned out that the, the answer to that first question was, it, it was it was on and got knocked off. So there was some force that was forcing the coating off. If it was on and got knocked off, there was nothing wrong with the coating process. It was downstream of that. And that's one of the strategies that we use and it's input versus function, which is part and parcel of isolation. And there, and there are three others as well. But you know, it's, um, and so, so the whole idea is your job's not to solve the problem. Your job's to learn one thing every day about the physics of function and failed function. And we have a lot of fun with that. I'll, I'll say that in front of a bunch of guys and David will say, why do you tell those guys their job is, is, um, is to learn one thing every day? He said, they should learn something by lunchtime and then do it again in the afternoon. Oh, wow. That is, that's incredible. I mean, the speed at which, you know, these problems or the you know the the nature of the problem or how stuff works as you mentioned can be can be understood now you know what you said some of the i would say conventional approaches of problem solving seem very different from this process of elimination this progressive search you know throughout my career you know i've been exposed to many different problem solving approaches I love problem solving myself. And one of these approaches is, you know, this whole black box approach where you take focusing on the, you know, the X's or the potential, you know, sources or potential inputs, right? But focusing too much on the X's and trying to essentially predict a Y, right? I'm pretty sure you've seen that. And, and, and as useful of an approach as it seems to me, it's, it kind of contradicts this approach that you mentioned. So not necessarily focusing on or trying to guess what X is could impact the Y and trying to put this, put it in, into, into this box or this model, you know, through regression and other approaches. It, your approach seems to be more of a really hands-on down-to-earth approach. So what do you think of other conventional approaches, like, like that black box approach that I mentioned? And, and do you ever find value in those or, or can those still be useful or powerful in certain situations? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, there is value. There is value to that. Um, I, I was listening to NPR some number of years ago. Mm -hmm. And I remember the, the I remembered I was driving across the Tappan Zee Bridge in upstate New York. And uh, there was a physicist that was, who was being interviewed and he was talking about subatomic particles. And he said, we have to use a probabilistic approach 
to describe the behavior of these particles because we don't understand the first principles. And he said, once we understand the first principles, we'll no longer have to default to the probabilistic approach. And he also said, once we understand the first principles, I know it's gonna be simple, but we're not there yet. Now think about that for a minute. In quality control, I'm good with using uh, probabilistic principles from the standpoint of, you know, examining things that are coming out of a process. That's okay with, I'm okay mm -hmm. with that. I'm, I'm good with that. But when we're trying to decompose the behavior of machines that consume power, let's say, we understand the first principles that govern their behavior. We need to start with an effect, the, the response, and then work through a process of elimination to converge on what we're looking for. And, it, and, it's, and I tell everybody when I'm working with them, all, you, you said, I really enjoy what I do. And so do I. You, you enjoy what you do. And so do I. And the objective is to have fun while you're doing this. Mm -hmm. Many of us in the technical fields chose these technical fields because we enjoy it. We like it. If you're working on a project and it takes months, weeks or months, I know what we will do. We will not have confidence in what we're doing. The mistakes that we made um, will be, we'll become enamored with them and will refuse to admit that we've made a mistake. That's the biggest reason, one of the big reasons that you have to be able to learn something new every day. And we'll define that as a success or a failure. If you don't learn something new today, if you can't go home at the end of the day and say, I know more about my product or my process at the end of the day than I knew at the beginning of the day, let's call it a failure. And it's perfectly okay. There's nothing wrong with failing, but you better not string a series of days together. And if I'm wrong, or if I make a mistake at the end of the day, fine, I'll walk into your office if I work for you and I admit it. I say, well, this didn't work, but we, here's what we're gonna do tomorrow. And here's how we're going to allocate our resources. And here's how we're going to, uh, you know, make sure that we learn something today. You said that we might try this X or that X. Let's try this or let's try that. And you probably use the language to resolve the issue. In other words, mm -hmm. make the problem go away. And how often do you do that? It's gone and then it comes back again. We don't want any of that. And that's the reason for a causal explanation which explains what's happening in the physical world according to first principles, backed up by first principles, tested by first principles. Um, and that really, it really does get to be a lot of fun. But talk about resources for a minute. Whenever you wanna test some X or some potential root cause, mm -hmm. you just consume the resources. You consume the resources. And you're not taking advantage of the sparsity of effects principle. And there's a video that I did on my blog. Uh, maybe you can write the name on there or something like that. Sure. There's a video that I did on my blog um, on the sparsity of effects. And it is the reason that what we do works. Because the effect that you're looking for has a much, much larger power than you think it does. It's why it works in the physical world. And it won't allow other X's or other effects to mask what you're looking for, if and only if 
you understand the effective principles of convergent diagnostics in a search from the effect to the cause. Okay. Works beautiful. So it's essentially the Pareto law in, in terms of these effects, right? There's only one effect that really matters. You just need to be able to find it. It's, it's essentially the Pareto principle, but you got to think in terms of the Pareto principle squared. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a helpful way to think of it. Uh, so it's not, just, it's not just the Pareto principle. It's the Pareto principle on steroids is the sparsity of effects principle. Great. Okay. So, uh, you know, we've talked, I, be- I believe, about one or two of these strategies, these four key strategies. What are the other key strategies? Would you, uh, uh, could you share with us what those are just in a nutshell? Sure. I think I, I, think I, I mentioned isolation and I gave an example. Uh, there's isolation, there's dissection. Dissection can split the world up based on the fact that I might have a structural difference in two products that I'm making and I can ask what's different. That will never get you to the end of a causal explanation. You can go from dissection, what's different at a structural level between two products. Maybe you got, I don't know, maybe you got uh, two pumps. One puts out more, more liquid than the, than the other you may choose to break that down in dissection. I probably wouldn't. There's another way that I'd go at it. There's, so isolation, dissection. Um, Matryoshka. Matryoshka, okay. Matryoshka are the little Russian dolls. Oh yeah, those nesting dolls, right? Nested Russian dolls, where you can take them apart and you work your way down to the center. And um, there are a few things that we do a few tools that we use for that. And, and uh, one of them is uh, small multiples. Small multiples is um, something that we borrowed from Edward Tufte. Yes. In his book. Um, and it's an extraordinary book. We also, and, and, and what it, I was working on a project a couple of weeks ago. It was a machine that had a whole lot of sensors in it, three mm-hmm. or 400 sensors. You, and, and you could look at that and collect data on all of those if you so chose. I broke it down so that I would only look at a few sensors that were arrayed in a particular way that gave them some level of association. And then I looked at an adjacent, adjacent uh, array. That's all I looked at and I needed no more than that. But when I chose to look at it, I laid this thing out on Excel and I put columns on the Excel worksheet. By putting columns in the Excel worksheet, you might end up with a small line and then another small line and another small line. And above that, you can put the names in that describe specifically what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. By breaking up the lines based on the way the product will reveal its nature, it makes it much easier to read what you're doing. You might choose to do this with any machined part. Now, Multivary was written about extensively, developed uh, 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 by a guy- Mr. Cedar, right? Back in the 50s? Back in the 50s, exactly. Len Cedar developed it. And he talked about within piece, piece to piece, and time to time is what he called the families of variation. Mm -hmm. We've gone well beyond that with small multiples. The objective is not to look at the part the objective is to relate it back to the datum scheme that created that part. 
And that's, by the way, that's all covered in this, in this book, Diagnosing Reliability. You mean this book, right? Oh, yeah, book, <laughs> Diagnosing Performance and Reliability. And you can get it off the website at tnsft.com slash bookstore. It's all covered in there in great detail. Yeah, so the, the, yeah, the, the Matryoshka strategy um, definitely provided some, some completely new insight to me. I was, you know, I've been using the multivariate and the multivariate strategy uh, and these families of variation for, you know, for, for years now. But you guys' approach is somewhat different. And, and I would say it goes beyond the traditional families of variation. So reading the book, I had quite a few aha moments when I was like, wow, this, you know what? I hadn't thought of it this way. Maybe, maybe I had, but with it, like the book itself provide context, right? So I do remember earlier in my career as a quality engineer, uh, being faced uh, with a tough, you know, manufacturing problem. Uh, I guess it would qualify for one of those projects that you guys um, work on. And I do remember trying to, trying to understand how things, how stuff worked. So not necessarily just try and solve the problem. And I actually used one of your approaches without even knowing that it was an actual approach, trying to set up a, you know, this spatial temporal framework for the part itself as to how it uh, was machined. you know, within the, the machine. And I was trying to apply those principles, but it didn't really go anywhere because I didn't know what I was doing at the time and how to do things. But I think with this book, what it's so good at is providing uh, essentially a structure for all these strategies. And in reading the book, it's a quite lengthy book and has a lot of good information. you know, by the time I, I was done reading it, I had a much better understanding of these strategies. So, so yeah, I, 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 I highly recommend the book. And I, from what I understand, um, you and your partner, David, you guys have another book in the pipeline already. Is that, is that true? Uh, yes, we're writing a book on how to manage these projects. Okay. Uh, so that you know, we've we've uh, kind of stayed away from how to manage projects because we have so much fun at it, and we lead these project teams, and we do it quite fast. But we don't think we've done the job that we could do to help managers manage these projects effectively, because after all, they're the ones that are responsible for these things, and they provide the resources to get it done. Um, and you know, there've been—I remember a guy. I wish I could say the name of the company. This is. Actually, it was, it was, the guy's no longer there. It was Pratt and Whitney and it mm-hmm. was years ago. And the guy that I was working with was the plant manager was always there when I showed up because he had so much fun doing this stuff. Um, and uh, he just loved it. But, you know, we did some good work up there. And, uh, but, y- you know, there are a lot of other people that are like that. They like it when we come in because they know we're going to make progress on these things. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, we have a lot of fun. So that's the whole idea. And I really do tell people when I walk in, I'm only here to have a good time. Yeah. That's all that, that's all that matters. At least to me, I have a lot of fun trying to solve problems. Now, another question for you, having, 
essentially taught, trained, and coached probably dozens, maybe hundreds or thousands of uh, technical people, engineers, on how to solve these problems, you know, using these approaches. Do you think the approach um, can be mastered by anyone, or does it also require, I guess, an affinity, you know, for for these things? So, to what level can it be thought by, you know, coaches or trainers, uh, trainers such as yourself? You know, there are there are there are a lot of people that can get the hang of this stuff. Mm-hmm. They do have to have a fundamental understanding of first principles. And that's why we all went to school. So it's all about like essentially applying those engineering principles. Yes, exactly. You can't get around, you can't get around that. Exactly. And there, and, and um, it's, it's fun and I love it. I got, I got a letter from a guy uh, yesterday telling, I was one of the people I was working with uh, last week or the week before And um, I got a letter from a guy telling me how much fun he had. I, I just, that's what I live for. I live for that stuff. Uh, I love it when people send me letters telling me how much, they, how much fun they had and how easy this became. No, not easy, simple. Just because something's simple doesn't mean it's easy. But the, but the principles that we apply, people understand. They went to school to learn first principles. Mm-hmm. Not particularly fond of the idea of using probabilistic decomposition of machines where we already understand the first principles. Great. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun, you know, these training sessions. So, you know, with COVID hopefully ending soon and the restrictions um, ending. Florida, uh, it's over. What was that? I said, I live in Florida. It's already over. Down oh, here. yeah, that's true. It's probably over. It's probably already over over there. <laughs> I know you still have you still have COVID out there. We don't we don't have it anymore. Great, great. So, um, are you guys on the road uh, teaching these uh, seminars and and training courses? Um, I am on the road. David and Tobias have a few more restrictions placed on them in in uh, England in the UK, United Kingdom and in Germany, but they're not far away from being back on the road, and they're also working some projects with some clients over the phone, but it's mm-hmm. clients that they've, where they've been before and where they've seen the processes. Let me explain a little bit. You'd said seminars and things like that. Sure. Most of what we do is workshops. And um, uh, a workshop means you pick a certain number of projects, a few projects, you assign a couple people to a team, small teams, two or three is plenty. We don't want any more than that. Sometimes it has to be more, but not, it's, there's got to be a good reason for more people on a team than that. Um, and we might come in and maybe we're going to be there for a week, typically for a week. And um, we might start off in a conference room. We're not in there very long. We might go through 20 or 30 slides just to explain the fundamental principles of what we're going to do. Very often there are two of us that go into a client together. And then we start laying out these problems within within a few hours of being there. We start laying them out in such a way that we have we have that first question. They can get out and begin to execute. I'm going to make. I'm going to say. I'm going to estimate half the problems that we work on with with in this this kind of an environment. We have the causal explanation by the end of the week. That's incredible. 
And that's opposed to people that might come in and teach a seminar and say, well, you got to finish a couple of projects over the course of the next year. We're not, we don't do that. And we don't subscribe to that idea. We don't look at it at all. The objective is, is, is to be able to fix things and understand their behavior quickly. Mm-hmm. That's so much fun. Yeah. Now, and it really comes down to, if you were to use a Japanese term, going to the Gemba and see how things work. And I know in the past, you know, there have been approaches that really emphasize this, you know, what you call the probabilistic approach, right? So without truly understanding how stuff works, you create these models and try to make estimations or predictions, which sometimes work, but a lot of times, really the best thing you can do is go see the process and try to understand how it works so you can make those determinations, uh, to use your, your, your terminology, to have a deterministic uh, understanding of how stuff works. Um, great. So, you know, I highly encourage um, my listeners and viewers to grab a copy of the book. It's really good. And if you have the opportunity, um, hit these guys up and, and, and take, a, take a training course from them. But, you know, for those who don't, you know, have currently have the opportunity to read the book or, you know, take a training course, what, you know, what ground rules can you offer you know, for problem solving? What are the ground rules of problem solving, in your opinion? Do, for someone that's just starting out, like what kind of stuff do they need to, you know, uh, be aware of? Well, that's an interesting question that you posed. Um, sometimes what people already know stands in the way of what they're trying to do. Uh, I really would suggest that people think about getting the book Looking at the blog that we've got, uh, the blog I've written, and that is fyx-z.com. Go in there and start to read some of the stories and and case studies that we've written up and take a look at those. There's one fundamental thing that has to be done correctly in order to be successful on a project. Okay. That is making sure that you get the first question and you have to ask it properly. If you don't have the first question, if you don't ask it properly, you're not going to succeed in your project and you're going to get frustrated. And and when you get frustrated, I know what you're going to do. You're going to start guessing at X's. Mm -hmm. Guessing what might be wrong. Guessing is the the single most thing that wastes a company's resources. You have to have a a, a way to eliminate what the problem is not so that when you get to a, a causal explanation, you have a high degree of confidence about what's happening. And I can give you countless examples of where that takes place. The one that I gave about the, um, about the, uh, the battery, mm-hmm. it, 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 you, the, the coating was on correctly and got knocked off or never was on. What were they working on? Never was on. Where was the problem? Was on, got knocked off. There were some energetics involved in knocking the coating off we had to discover what those energetics were. But by the time we got there, we were highly confident. There's another example that I could go to. And you know, I'm picking ones that are relatively easy to understand, but they certainly demonstrate the fundamental points that we wanna, that we wanna get across. A company was, had a problem with an airbag failing. And the question was, became the airbag 
deployed and then failed or failed in the course of deployment. Now think about that for a minute. It's two completely different sets of physics. Then you have to say, okay, I've got two different sets of physics. How do I execute in order to be able to eliminate one of these? Um, and you, know, you can step it through from that standpoint. There's a lot of people that run around looking for some sort of a response variable that they can test out with a measurement system. I don't think that's the most effective way. The most effective way is to say, how can I get this product or process to reveal its physical nature? And then how can I get a measurement system to see what's happening? Not what's wrong, but to see what's happening. I can't count the number of times that we go in to work on a problem and people are using the same method of measurement that they use for quality control to, 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 to solve the problem. It just doesn't, it, it, well, sometimes it works, but sometimes you can, but usually if they call us, the measurement system isn't going to work to do what they're trying to accomplish. Because mm -hmm. the measure is the, the, the wrong characteristic in right. terms of finding you know those causal mechanisms right it's a real good job of measuring what's wrong but it's not going to tell you what's it very often won't tell you what's happening okay yeah that's 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 a really good insight and i've run into you know this problem countless times okay another question that i i had uh was essentially around you know the power small multiples which it's it's an incredible approach and, you know, by using that approach, you, you can really be economical in your search. Now, you know, with this whole technological transformation that, that's going on in the world, you know, especially when it comes to manufacturing, you know, we have terms like big data, automation, huge amounts of data is now available to, you know, to help, to aid root cause analysis, you know, if you will. So what do you think about that? You know, the value of using really small data sets or the small multiples essentially versus big data. Do you see value in big data at all? Of course I see value in big data, but not for helping to solve technical problems. Okay. There's certainly value in it. I mean, you need to use big data if you're gonna study what's going on with COVID throughout the world. But what we do, and, and that is probabilistic in nature. You know, what's, what, is the, what is the probability that you're gonna get a vaccine in the arm and it's not gonna work or it's not gonna be helpful? You, you need to collect a lot of data in order to be able to, to understand what's happening in that world. In the physical world, you don't need it. As a matter of fact, it stands four square in the way of what we're trying to do. When you, when you, dis, when you understand how a product will reveal its nature, when you understand, really understand the power of small multiples, the Pareto squared or Pareto on steroids, and you provide the opportunity for the, you know, the, 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 the effect that we're looking for to reveal its nature. When you provide that opportunity, you don't need a lot of data. And it, but it all, you also have to get that first question established correctly. You think about what people are doing with big data. They don't even have a question when they start. They collect a bunch of data and look for some sort of an effect in the midst of all this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's so really a pitfall that. First, 
then you, then you collect just enough to get the answer to that question. And that's it. You don't need much. Okay. So there's definitely value in both small data and big data. At least that's what I think. But I know that a lot of folks, you know, fall in the trap of just using big data or huge amounts of data just for the sake of, you know, technology or just, oh, it's all available to me, right? Might as well just use it. Um, okay, great. Um, One more piece. I, went out, I, I did a project not long ago and a guy shows up with a piece of paper and holds it up and it's got three or 400 lines on it. And he was a little annoyed because I said, I don't want to look at that thing. I don't know how to analyze a piece of paper that's got a bunch of lines on it. It looked, it looked just like somebody had dropped pixie, pixie yeah. pickup on a piece of paper. It's too easy to collect a lot of data. It takes good strategic approach to figure out that first question and then the second question and the third question. But to, to get that first question properly phrased and then collect only enough information, collect data and turn it into information to get that question answered. Yeah, that's the hard part. That's what requires expertise, knowledge, and just knowing what's going on and what what approach to use. Great. It's so, um, it's so much fun. It is. It is a lot of fun. As a lot of fun. Hey, um, one more question. So, in reading the book, I know that you guys put a lot of emphasis on you know these very down to earth graphical methods approaches. You know, say the multivary. And I was really glad to see that you use the mighty Uden plot a lot. I'm a huge fan of that graphical, you know, method. And um, I actually, I learned uh, some new approaches, some new ways in which Uden plots could be used, you know, for, you know, for your pro progressive search. Could you uh, tell the listeners about, you know, the Uden plot method? Yeah, sure. There might be a, uh... You might just want to test out a measurement system. Say you have first set of measurements against the second set of measurements and you just plot them. If you get a nice straight line, it looks like the measurement system works. But there are a lot more things you can do with it. You can test, you, you, can, you, can, um, uh, you, can, you can put test parts before and then test them again after they go through a manufacturing process or a heat treat process, something mm -hmm. along And you might begin to see a bias off the 45 degree line. And that shows you the effect of what happened. So yeah. powerful, so powerful. But yeah. You're absolutely right about the power of effective graphics. Um, when, in, in, in even cartooning, if you looked in the book, there are a lot of cartoons that are in there. Uh, a lot of people like to walk out to a process and take a photograph. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci talked about the difference between seeing and looking. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we, go, we, we just look at something. When you draw a picture of it, when you draw a cartoon, you begin to see. Now, um, if I ask people if they can draw, most people say, no, I can't. Now I say, well, you can't see. And we teach them how to, how to make a, an effective sketch to see what you need to see. My, I've got notebooks all over the house and I need to start, you know, picking them up and getting them back in the office uh, loaded with sketches because it, while I'm doing the sketch or while I'm doing the cartoon, I think my way through this. I remember I went into a glass plant 
I don't know, 10 years ago. And they asked me to work on a project and I showed up a day early. And I said, would you let me come in? Cause I want to sketch this process. I'd never seen that kind of a process before. I wanted to sketch it out so that when we started the next day, I had some insight and understanding about how that place worked. Um, and I, I can learn so much with just, just a quick sketch of, of, of what's happened. Not a process flow diagram, but, but much more, much different from the standpoint of how I can help myself decompose the behavior of the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. By doing, by sketching up whatever it is that you're, you know, you're interested in, you're essentially learning about it. Yes. When people want to, you know, people want to have, you know, management summaries at the end of each day. And, and guys can fool around half the day making PowerPoint slides. Mm -hmm. I don't make PowerPoint slides. I use the whiteboard or I use a flip chart. That's what we use for summaries. And then when we're all finished, if, the, if we want to take the project and, and, and use it as part of a knowledge capture system, then we can write them up not for purposes of, of, of a presentation, but for purposes of capturing the knowledge because competitive advantage comes from gaining new knowledge and gaining insight and understanding about what's happening. And competitive advantage really doesn't come from root cause analysis. That's just fixes things to get them back to where you, the way they were before. But what we do is insight and understanding, a causal explanation, and that's how you gain competitive advantage and we do it fast. Absolutely. Now, uh, speaking of that, you know, a lot of the book, a lot of the, uh, the material, the content, the key studies presented in the book uh, is really dedicated to, you know, diagnosis, mm -hmm. um, you know, this progressive search and these strategies. Do you also have a strategy for, you know, not just fixing stuff or diagnosing stuff, but, you know, for like developing new product and developing a product with high reliability? Sure, sure, um, sure we do. And that's the source load impedance model okay. that we've developed and uh, is probably the biggest contribution that we have made to the field of uh, engineering problem solving and, and diagnosis. Uh, and essentially what it is, it's a picture, it's, it's the story of how power and energy flow through machines and what they do. There's only seven things you can do with a machine, regardless of the domain. And, and you know, if I ask you the definition of quality, if I, well, if I ask a half a dozen people the definition of quality, I'll get different definitions. One might be uh, uh, reduced variation about the nominal or something like that. And people will come up with different definitions. The one I like to use for product performance is how well does the machine work at T equals zero? when it's brand new. In other words, if I stick a certain amount of energy into that machine, how much of it comes out in the form of useful work and how much of it is lost to the, to the system losses, system impedance or system losses in accordance with the second law of thermodynamics. And then the definition of reliability is how long does it work well? In other words, for every unit of power I put into a machine, how much comes out in the, in the, in the uh, form of useful work and how much is lost. And once again, how do you draw a picture of that? We do it at what we call the effort flow workspace that shows how, the, how a machine performs. And you don't need an entire machine to be able to do that. You can begin to do it 
as soon as you have identified the system functions, and clearly there are multiple, um, or there are many, you can test that function independently. I've got a fortune tied up in Lego machines, uh, electric motors, uh, uh, air compressors, etc. back in the back room back there. And um, that's kind of what we've done. We built up those machines. David and I built up those machines in order to be able to, to test and understand those principles and, you know, and to, and to, and to change the source, change the amount of energy you're putting into this thing, change the load that you're putting on it, um, and then going from there. So we are actively engaged with a couple of people just on what you're talking about, which is uh, in the product development phase. Great. That's great to hear. So essentially a full, full cycle from just fixing stuff that's already broken to developing stuff that will never be broken. Okay. I, I love it. I love it. Um, all right. So, um, you know, for those of you who are interested in, in learning more about this approach and John and David and, you know, the new science of fixing things strategy, I really highly recommend that you get, you know, this book, Diagnosing Performance and Reliability. Uh, I've learned, I've personally learned a lot from the book. And uh, I, I personally hope that I get to attend one of your seminars someday. Uh, I guess, you know, we'll talk about that probably offline. But um, I, I think John is also happy to field any questions that, you know, you may have. Do you have an email address uh, or a profile that, you know, folks can reach out to you? My email is john, J-O-H-N dot Allen, A-L-L-E-N at T nsft.com tango november sierra foxtrot tango.com great you'll be getting a lot of requests and questions okay. well, i appreciate that but i'm really grateful for the opportunity to do this uh maybe one of these days we'll do this again and we'll walk back in the other room and we can fool around with the legos that would be awesome that's the uh you know the the little kid in me that <laughs> that wants that to happen Great. Uh, thank you so much, John, for, you know, for, for being on, on this episode as the guest. I personally have a ton of respect for you and your partners for what you do, uh, teaching folks uh, to how to solve, you know, uh, how to solve tough technical problems and essentially preaching the word on this, um, on what appears to be a very successful, incredible method. Um, for problem solving and, and improving performance. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity, John. And I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you very much. I'm grateful for the chance to do this. Be well.